Think back on some of your most impactful firsts in life. A first love, a first big career move, a first tragedy. All moments that undoubtedly helped to shape who you are today. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. On this episode of Cityscape, New York City is the backdrop for life-changing firsts, starting with first loves. I visited the Hebrew home for the aged in Riverdale to talk with a couple of women about their first loves and find out what it meant to be swept up in such a special feeling. I'm Janet Gushin. I'm from Boston originally. And the first time I fell in love was when I saw Joel Mack. He was, um, to quote approximately quote uh, Olivia de Havilland about Errol Flynn. He was the most beautiful man I'd ever seen. And um, I was a junior at Harvard. I was an undergraduate. He was, um, I think, in his last year at Harvard Medical School. He was gorgeous. He um, looked like Paul Newman, but tall. So it was the physical attraction? it was physical. So when did you get to know him? Well, I dated him for over a year. Um, I was his Friday night date. He had um, he had a Saturday night date. Uh, I don't know who she was. I think she was a nurse or a nursing student who came across more sexually. I was a little reluctant on that front. Um, but we had a lot of fun. What did you do on those Friday night dates? Well, we would go out to eat. Uh, maybe go out dancing, um, and then go back to my house in Milton, Massachusetts, and play around. We should, I guess, read between the lines there, right? Yeah. And how long did this go on between you and him? Um, a little over a year, and um, uh, until he went off to his internship in... Um, Minneapolis, Minnesota. He went to an internship in Minneapolis, a surgical internship. And uh, from there, I understand he went to Bakersfield, California. After he became an orthopedic surgeon, he went off to Bakersfield, uh, California, which I really wouldn't have liked. And um, he's still there. My daughter looked him up online. Um, He's alive. He's still good-looking maybe a little less hair. He's an animal activist. He's retired from surgery. Was there a goodbye? Yes, a big goodbye with a big kiss. Did you feel bad when he moved on, when you had to have that final kiss? Yes, I I did, I did. But I knew that I wasn't going to follow him. I think the nurse did follow him. Um, I wasn't going to follow him. I had to finish my uh, senior year at Harvard. I wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted um, a life as um, a professional, independent. I wanted to travel. Um, and I did all that. I had a very good time. I, uh, I basically worked in order to finance my, my trips. When I did... first worked at uh, Kings County Hospital in uh, psychiatry, and then it it was too far to get to Kings County from where I was living on the Upper West Side at 230 Riverside Drive, so it was a really long trip into Brooklyn. So I transferred within the city system to um, Bellevue, and I first worked in the hearing and speech clinic there, and then 
um, I uh, transferred to psychiatry. And I became a supervisor of psychiatric social work. And that's where I met my eventual husband. I was going to ask, Steve when Gushen. did that second Steve love? Was that yeah, second, second love? love? Right, second love. Uh, Steve Gushin, he was the uh, director of psychiatric social work. The um, uh, Not psychiatric social work, the psychiatric walk-in clinic. And I was the director of, uh, no, I was the supervisor of psychiatric social work. And um, we had an immediate attraction. And he used to take me to lunch. We'd have sandwiches from Lucy's, an Italian deli on 2nd Avenue. That went on for a while. He wrote me poems, which was very nice. We got married um, two years later. I was 30 when we got married. I wasn't ready to get married when I met Joel. I was just ready to be enchanted, which I was. So you were in a different place in your life. Right. You met your husband, and the time and was right. Steve looked like John Cassavetes. Looks were always important to me. How would you describe the feeling of love? You know, that first feeling. I mean, you described it was a physical attraction, but can oh, you put I it was, into words? I was dizzy. You know, I was just dizzy. I was... was there a similar dizziness when you first saw your husband? Um, no, I was attracted to Steve. I wasn't dizzy, but I was more... Uh, grounded then, I was more purposeful. Fun looking back, isn't it? It is fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your first love with me. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a great pleasure for me. My name is Rosalind Gottlieb, and uh, I'm from Riverwalk in the Bronx. My first love was a young man in, oh, I think it was high school, and uh, I had a crush on him. But it didn't work out, and uh, I went on to meet other people and then finally met my love. My husband, of 47 and a half years, was given my number by a friend or a relative, and he carried it around for a year and a half. And then he finally went to the phone book and looked it up again to make sure and called me, and it was... Washington birthday weekend, and by May 10th, we were engaged, and by October 8th, we were married. It was just so, so real and so wonderful. It seems that you had a pretty quick courtship. Mm-hmm. When did you realize, I love this man, those feelings? The first thing that pleased me, and this is going to sound terrible, that night, the first night, we went to the movies, the Paramount. And uh, first of all, I didn't know whether to wear high heels or low heels, whether he was short or he was tall. Um, and we were sitting in the movies, and I looked over before, as, before the lights went out. And he was wearing a gray suit with a burgundy stripe in it. And I noticed that not only was his tie matching, but his handkerchief matched and his socks matched. And... Uh, I thought that was pretty sharp, and it started from there. We really hit it off almost immediately. And uh, as I say, it was quick. It was really quick. And it was wonderful. I mean, uh, unfortunately, I only had 47 and a half years. I'm here, living here, and people are celebrating 60 and 70, you know. But they were good years. 
oftentimes people talk about physical attraction, being attracted to someone first because of the way they looked, but you didn't see your husband until that first date, right? Someone gave him your number. Right. It was a blind date. In those days, uh, you had the choice of going to a dance, which felt like a like you were standing there and the, the guys were coming around and looking you over like cattle. I mean, it was terrible. And it was through introduction that you met people. There was no such thing as going to a bar. I mean, my granddaughter now goes to a bar and is meeting people. That, that was unheard of, you know. So it was a matter of we went out, we had common interests, we had uh, similar feelings about a lot of things, and it grew within... Within, as I say, by May, by May 8th, we knew that this was going to be it. And I got my engagement ring then, and uh, it was all planned. What are among your fondest memories of you and your husband together? God, there are so many things. When our first grandchild was born, we stood, in those days you used to go to the hospital, and they showed you the babies behind a glass case. And he turned around to me and he said to me, and now we go on, which was a very profound statement. And uh, I think of that so often because, yes, and now we go on. The same grandson has now given me three grand, great-grandchildren. We have six grandchildren, uh, four, five boys and a girl. But uh, he never saw them graduate from college, which was something he would have loved he had a very domineering mother who wanted a son, a doctor. And she insisted that he go to try to get into medical school. And he went for two years, and then, as he said, thankfully, the Army took me. So when he came back, he was not interested anymore in going back to school. He would have been a wonderful history teacher. He loved American history, European history, but he was just a basically good-natured individual. He had a temper. He would lose it for a minute. And then all of a sudden, it was all over. You know, I'd say, okay, my father used to tease him. He used to say, I'll kill him. My father said, okay, now that that's over, what are you going to do? You know, he was just, he was the best thing that ever happened. So uh, really, it, uh, it really... It's nice to look back and have good memories like that. How hard is it to say goodbye to your first love? He was your first love. Yeah, really. Um, it's difficult, but the older you get, and, and if you really love somebody, you don't want them suffering that way. And... Uh, I lost my mother when she was 65 from Parkinson's, so I, I knew that you never forget. You never, ever forget they're with you every day. But you learn to live with it, and you, you tend, nature somehow is wonderful. You tend to go back and say, well, we had good years, and we have to appreciate that. If I were to ask you to put into words the feeling of love, that first love, of the love that you had for him. How would you put those feelings into words? You can't put it into words. It's a, it's a, it's a caring, it's a wanting to be with someone. It's uh, sharing things uh, 
doing for each other. You know, the, the concept of, oh, ardent love and things like that. Yes, in the very beginning you have that, but then it turns into a very comfortable, wonderful way of life to share, to, to do together, to be together, and to share sorrows and joys. You're there for each other. Is exactly what it is. It's not, it's not what they put up in the movies. You know, all this ardent passion. That's in the beginning, yes. But then, you get a comfort level, and you learn to live with each other and share with each other and be a family when it comes down to it. Well, thank you so much for sharing well, your story of first love. That was Janet Gushin and Rosalind Gottlieb talking about their first loves. It's all too common and saddening to hear of cancer diagnoses, but when it happens to you, it can be downright scary and life-altering. Our next guest was confronted with the challenge of breast cancer early on. I got a chance to talk with her about how the unsettling first diagnosis changed her career path and inspired a network of holistic practices and workshops to help women in similar situations. My name is Luana DeAngelis, and I am the founder, executive director of You Can Thrive here in New York City. So Luana, if I were to have you start the sentence the first time I was diagnosed, uh, can you start that sentence for me and then complete your thought? The first time I was diagnosed with cancer, it was enlightening and hard. When you say it was enlightening, what do you mean? I received an understanding of suffering from a perspective of a 35-year-old woman who had been through a lot of pain in her life. But this understanding of suffering led me into a huge wealth of compassion rather than pain without a reason, pain without meaning. And what was your cancer diagnosis? I had a large invasive ductal carcinoma. I was very young, and I descended from a long generational background of women in natural health, so I was never putting my plastic in the microwave, and I was always the one who didn't smoke and followed very healthy lifestyle practices, so it was surprising But I had had a dream where a mother goddess came to me and basically told me to not respond. But I understood at that moment that I was being diagnosed that it was happening to me for a reason. So it helped me to not suffer a lot. So when you receive a diagnosis like that, what do you do in terms of telling other people? That was the hardest part. You nailed it right on the head. Because I was okay with the diagnosis, and and I remember the doctor saying to me, you know, kid, we're telling you you have cancer, right? And he repeated it like three times because I wasn't having a nervous breakdown. And I said, I got you. I understand. The hardest part was when I left the doctor's office, and I had to call my husband and my friends. And then, and many cancer survivors will tell you this, I felt that I was supporting other people right away. I had to support their reaction to my diagnosis, which was the hardest part. It made me cringe to think about calling my mother, who had lost so many people in her life to cancer, and telling her that I had cancer. My best friend at the time collapsed on the kitchen floor, bawling her face off when I told her. And 
there was just the everyone's different response was kind of much harder than the diagnosis itself for me. So tell me about the journey after you did get that diagnosis and to this organization that you have. Well, I was searching for help because my background was in natural health and I was at the time working as a creative and an artist and a musician. It was very hard to afford those things which I knew I needed to be able to not only get through the experience and suffer less, but to actually have a better outcome. I started calling from A to Z, all the pink charities, and I was appalled to find out that almost pretty much every single one of them said, we don't do that. And I said, wait a minute, there's so much money out there for breast cancer. Where's your money going? And they said to look. And so I started following the money trail, and I was even more appalled. And then I was an angry young breast cancer survivor. And I was passionate about integrative means. And so I started telling my story. And then uh, within that year, I started doing advocacy work and reaching out to other survivors and helping them to understand their diagnosis and then to understand what they could do in addition to what the doctors had for them. The idea to actually have a foundation. And what came to me was give a woman a fish and she'll eat for a day, but teach a woman to fish and she'll teach her entire community. And because women are the caretakers of society, I knew that if we started with the women and we taught them that they would teach their families and that that was how we were going to affect the incidence, prevalence, and mortality rates from this disease. So what are you now teaching women? Well, I have developed over these past 10 years a multidisciplinary model that includes access to meditative exercise, nutritional counseling, all of the different resources that they need, along with peer support and events where they can get together, but not focusing on cancer, focusing on preventing future cancers, focusing on living a healthier lifestyle. When you get a cancer diagnosis, you want to change your, your lifestyle, but having only a website to read or a self-help book is not going to be what you need. You really need hand-holding. You need to understand not only how to reprogram, but what to do and then have support in doing that. We really focus on that with women, on how to get in touch with what it is that they need and then teach them a lot of different things so that they can create a personalized survivorship plan. So what would be your best piece of advice for someone who does hear those words? You have cancer. This is cancer. So let me give some advice for the people around those people who hear that advice, uh, hear those words. Don't try to solve their problems. Don't try to tell them about sour sap or that your friend was healed with gasoline or Venus flytrap. Just say that must be really hard. I'm sorry that you're going through this and give them a hug. And if the questions come and your expertise is needed down the road, then give it to them. But just support them and acknowledge their story and keep your own stuff out of it. And for the people that might hear those words, I want to say, I wouldn't take it back. I wouldn't take that cancer diagnosis back. As hard as it's been and as terrifying as it was at some points, it was more enlightening than 
any experience that I've ever had, and it helped so many other people, my being diagnosed, that I, I, I wouldn't take back any of the painful things that have happened to me, even though I wouldn't wish for them again and I wouldn't wish them on anyone else. <laughs> uh, you'll get through this, and you'll find meaning in it. Luana, thanks so much. Thank you, George. That was Luana DeAngelis. She's the founder and executive director of You Can Thrive. The support group is online at youcanthrive.org. This is Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. We're focused on this edition of Cityscape on first times, and our next guest provides perspective and insight from two fronts. First, as a mom herself, but also as someone who helps bring new life into the world as a career. Annette Perel is a doula. She's in the studio with me now. Annette, thank you so much for coming in to talk with me. Thank you for having me. So you're a mom, right? Yes, I am, of a nine-year-old who thinks he's 14, (laughs) a little boy. What was that like the first time that you had a baby? I was a doula for four years before I had a baby. So my first time experience, having helped a lot of moms before, I thought, you know, I was going to have this whole different experience. I had a midwife, which is pretty uncommon for a lot of people. And I also had a doula to help me through. And my midwife was constantly telling me not to doula myself because I was a doula. And I, this is what I know. I know how to support other people. And I could support myself. And she was like, no, let your doula do that. So now for those unfamiliar with what a doula does, yes. what does a doula do? A doula, she does magic. <laughs> um, <laughs> a doula provides informational support, comfort support, and physical information and comfort support during birth. So a lot of people use doulas in the sense of when they're going to have a, a birth. Mostly, most people give birth in hospitals. And we kind of bridge the gap between the information that you're, you're going to get in the hospital or from your doctor and how you want to incorporate in your life. A lot of people want to labor at home for as long as possible before they go into the hospital. And what does that look like? So a lot of times, you know, we have experience with birth in our culture from what we see in Hollywood movies. Water breaks, chaos ensues, Mm -hmm. mom runs to the hospital. But it's not like that. For the most part, most labors take time, over 24 hours. So you hadn't had your own baby when you became a doula. Yes. And then all of a sudden, you're witnessing other people have babies. Yes. So you've experienced lots of first times for this. Yes, I have. Um, first of all, what was the first time like for you just to be in the room when someone else was having a baby? That was incredible. I had, I had a client who had lived in Englewood, New Jersey, and she was renovating her apartment. So she had no place to labor, really. So her midwife told her to come into the birthing center. So from her first contraction, really, which is not really when the doula joins, it's really more so when things have established more of a pattern. So from her first contraction until she gave birth, it was 27 hours. Wow. So I was there for the whole 27 hours supporting her. Her husband was also there. He was part of it. And we took turns supporting the mom. It was the most exhilarating feeling to hear that baby cry for the first time, Mm. to take its first breath, and to have witnessed the parent's journey into parenthood, because that's really what labor is about. It's that journey. And I remember I went home and I was so exhausted. And I slept for 12 hours. (laughs) And I woke up and I said, I want to do that again. Wow. 
Wow. And that was over 13 years ago. So how different is the experience when it is you yourself giving birth? Extremely different when it's you yourself because I had never experienced a contraction. I had never experienced. I knew I could support women through the process, but having experienced a contraction, knowing when my labor would start, how I would be, what would I do? Could I really do it? Because I was not going to a hospital. I was having a home birth with a midwife. And I know that women had done this before, and I know I supported women. And in the history of this is what birth is, like women supporting women, and you, your body was meant to do this. And I knew my body could do it, but I didn't know how I would be in it. You know, even though I had helped a lot of women, it was still how I experienced pain is a lot different. And my labor was very long. My labor took the course of four days. Wow. So you surpassed that 27 hours by a long way, shot. Way, <laughs> way, way past the 27 hours. But it was kind of unusual. It's it's something that they call prodromal labor, which is a really long first stage of labor. That whole process took, for me, about three days. And so what happened was I would be having contractions during the day, but not Hollywood contractions, not to the point where I was like in excruciating pain. I was uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I was able to walk through them and talk through them. So I knew it was still early. And then on the fourth day, they finally kicked in. I cannot begin to explain fully (laughs) how excited I was on one aspect of it, but I also knew how to support myself. And it was really about the moment, being present. So after the contraction, it was either I needed to rest or I needed to drink or I needed to use the restroom. And by the time my doula came, she was invaluable to me, her presence alone, because having she had been through it and being able to look at her and say this, you know, she knew where I was without me having to explain that this hurt. <laughs> and and in between contractions, she was good at, at helping me with movement, helping me to get off of the bed because when she came in, I was on the bed. And I remember at one point I had a contraction that was really intense. And I remember in the contraction thinking, my great, great, great grandmother did this because that's how I got here. Mm. And even though I felt like it was the worst pain ever, it was going to end and it wasn't going to take me with it. Like I was going to survive. Let me ask you this question yes. because you referenced how amazing it was to hear that baby cry yes. when you were first in there witnessing a birth. But yes. when it's your own child and you hear that cry, what's that like? For me, I had done so much hard work in that moment. And when I first heard his cry, I was so overjoyed. There were there was there's nothing to compare that feeling to that now this baby is here on the outside and I get to hold him and see him and count his fingers and his toes and hear that he's okay. I I was overjoyed. I could not even begin to describe how elated I was and the feeling of accomplishment from what I had just done. But just looking at his face for the first time I was amazed that he a few minutes ago he was inside of me and now he's here and he was the most beautiful baby I had ever seen. It was totally amazing. How, if at all, did giving birth yourself affect how you operate as a doula? It, it totally affects how I operated as a doula. Before, I knew I had this education 
to say, yes, I know you have a contraction in between, you'll feel fine. But having experienced a contraction for the first time myself and many contractions thereafter, I was surprised that people had hired me before. It was it's it just spoke to the volume of work that it's about support and really being able to support a woman through to give her that encouragement, however she needs it, whether if she's going to cry or if she's going to laugh or if she's going to be angry about it, but really just being present and giving her that support. It totally changed my practice to know that, wow, I did it and experienced it and it was tough. So I don't bring my experiences to my clients in that sense. Only experience I bring is the fact that I know that they can do it however they choose to do it. It's really about supporting them because the studies show that women who are supported in birth can then support and feel comforting in raising their children. So when women don't feel supported, that's when there is a huge shift. I can't speak enough to the volume of how it's just really about supporting women through this process. Annette, thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Annette Perel is a doula here in New York City. You can find her doula services online at nycdoulacollective.com and clearbirth.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.